Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. I I, I met a famous person once. (laughs) I want to tell you about it, in fact. It was a weird situation, but... Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, to some of you that in 2009, after college, I had an internship out in Los Angeles, and apparently this is a thing. You go to Los Angeles, and after a while, you just start to run into famous people because they all live out there. And uh, on Sunday mornings, I attended St. David's Anglican Church in North Hollywood. And while I was there, uh, because I had some church music experience in my background, I volunteered to be part of the church music band for the summer that I was out there. So I basically just show up at a church and say, hey, I was part of an Anglican church. I'm here for the summer. Uh, I'm here to hang out with you guys. Need some help with the music. And they said, sure, come on in. And so I got to meet a guy named Chip. And Chip was an actor in Hollywood. And um, he wasn't always there. He wasn't always there because, you know, he had acting jobs. And so sometimes he had to work on Sundays. And he was also the drummer in the band. So I didn't have drums, but I, you know, keep him going to perfect play for him. They were fairly often. So I'm across the guy, Chip, and I'm talking to him, and I'm, thinking to myself, he looks so daggum familiar. Where have I seen him before? And later on during coffee, I mentioned that to a friend. It's like, oh, yeah, I become famous at church because people have that feel about him. Like, yeah. He gives given that show out to you. Know, I said, oh, yes. And he's a guy who's like, anyway, like, hey, and, and Colin, oh, I almost thought of my cousin, who was. I spent my middle school years watching him dance and sing on television. I said, that's so cool. So, you know, not to brag, but that's my closest rush to fame I think I've really ever had. So I got to slum with a, a TV star when I was out in Hollywood Church. I got to take over a praise band for him. And well, he's a very nice guy and his kids are very well behaved. So, you know, that's really the story. But have you ever had that experience before where you got to sort of meet with or encounter somebody of a different um, sort of lifestyle than you? Uh, maybe you've had uh, a run-in with a famous person like that. Maybe you've had your own rush of fame. You've shaken hands with Pittsburgh Steel, maybe you've signed by your writer. When you're in this kind of fame and power, for a bird that worry, it's unsettling, I think. Uh, because you're sitting there and you're sort of acting a little different and you're speaking a little different. And you're aware that the stakes are a lot higher. Um, because you never know what blessings could come when the famous person comes to dwell in your midst. And you sit there and you go, oh my gosh, uh, this is not everyday life, what is happening right now. So what would happen if instead of meeting a a C-list improv star, um, you encountered God himself? What would it be like for you if instead of having an encounter with your favorite author or an actor, you got to actually settle in and shake hands with the God of the universe? Uh, In the Bible, uh, Jesus' birth is told a number of times in a number of different contexts. Uh, You know this, right? It's Christmas season, so... We got to hear Luke's story of the nativity. We got the shepherds coming in 
And, um, you know, we have the story of Zechariah and the story of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus being born. And then you also have Matthew. And Matthew, of course, you have mentions uh, some of these things as well. And, and you get to read about the Magi in the book of Matthew coming from far away to deliver gifts to Jesus. And then on top of that, you have the, the, the one secret version, which we talked about a couple of years ago on Christmas Eve in Revelation, where uh, John takes the story of Jesus and he adds in some dragons and some fire and turns it into a really cool, wild, apocalyptic version of Jesus' birth. But in the Gospel of John, what we're going to talk about today in John chapter 1, we have a different view of the Gospel, which is a strictly theological view of the Gospel. That while others give us narrative or others give us um, apocalypse, John gives us what it looks like for the God of the universe to come and dwell among us. It's one of the most densest passages in all of the Bible, in fact. And so much has been written and talked about in this one little piece from John chapter 1 uh, that it's worth giving it some time. In fact, um, I don't think I can give it enough time. We, we only have a little bit this Sunday morning. I could spend days going through this with you to talk about what it means and the implications for all of us, but uh, there's a lot going on here, and I'll spare you. It's a holiday weekend. There's more food to eat. So what I want to do is I want to focus on one particular verse in which John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's clarify this word, right? Because part of what John wants to do is talk about the word. Who is the word? What is the word? Um, well, he wants us to know a couple of things about it. John wants us to, to know, for example, that the word is preexistent. Uh, that the word was in the beginning, right? He's pulling that language from Genesis, right? In the beginning, God made heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? He's pulling this sort of language of very, very ancient, old, pre-existent existence. Meaning that whoever the word is, the word exists before creation and helped build creation. So you have the pre-existent word. Um, then you have the word as light, totally incorruptible, the darkness shall not overcome it. Light is, of course, being this imagery of purity, light of being this image of truth, light being this image of goodness. So you have a pre-existent light, a pre-existent incorruptible goodness who is life, uh, who is the source of life, who helped make everything. Um, so John is listing out these qualities of what is the word, who is the word, what describes the word, and he says it's preexistent, uh, it's light, it's goodness, it's purity, and then he's, he has to clarify, John says what he's like, by the way, and it's not John the Baptist, that's <laughs> not him. <laughs> he says instead, um, the word um, is something bigger and more beautiful and so absolutely wild um, that it, it's going to blow everybody's mind. He says the word this pre-existent purity and light from before all time has become flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is something that the ancient readers would have gone, um, excuse me, they would have not have liked this because in the ancient world, um, when something is flesh, uh, it is limited. Uh, that the ancient religions of the world were, were very much about trying to escape your body. Uh, the ancient religions of the world were, said things like your body is withholding and it's limiting and and you need to be able to sort of transcend that if you want to have any sort of spiritual experience. Your body is dirty and it holds you back. 
So the fact that John is saying from the very beginning, the world became flesh uh, is something remarkable because what he's saying is, uh, dear ancient world, your religions are totally backwards. It's not about us becoming spirit and getting rid of our bodies. It's about the light of the world becoming flesh. And this flesh, of course, means that the light of the world, the pre-existent goodness of the world, uh, became muscle and bone and sinew and tendon and skeleton and the, this, it dwelt among us. And this word dwell here is very fun. Uh, it's, uh, it's a word in Greek, and I won't belabor the point, but the word is skenao. And the word here, skenao in Greek, is the word that nomadic tribes would use when they would arrive somewhere and they'd pitch their tents. So imagine you're out on the savanna, right? And there's a big nomadic herd and the camels are there and they come to the oasis and they all get out and they all throw up their tents really quick so they can get out of the sun and then grab a drink of water. Um, the, the word skenao here is to say that this word, this pre-existent goodness and light in the world, uh, pitched his tent among us. Uh, one scholar says it like this. It says, um, he says that the word that God himself has moved into the neighborhood is part of what it means to dwell among us. Imagine if God had moved into our neighborhood. Imagine if God was your next door neighbor. His lawn would probably be immaculate and you'd be jealous about it, but that's neither here nor there. God would be paying property taxes. God would be in the giant eagle getting a bowl of frosted flakes with you. He would maybe have a country club membership, maybe not. Uh, maybe um, you'd be seeing at the bowling alley or the pizza shop. You'd be walking your dog around the block. It's like, hey, God, how are you doing today? Doing just fine, Brian, thank you. That's the imagery of what John is wanting us to see. The word became flesh, pre-existent goodness incarnate. Whatever chasm kept us from getting close to God, God figured out a way across it. And now he has moved into the neighborhood. There was a song from the 90s about this, and maybe this is more meaningful to me than it is to you, but if you were anywhere on the planet Earth in a few months of 1995, you heard this song, and it was a song that was theologically reflective, but maybe um, a little, could have gone deeper, maybe. And the song was by a recording artist named Joan Osborne, and the song was called One of Us. And she imagines this saw, uh, this act taking place. What if God was one of us, she sang, just a slob like one of us? What if God was just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? I see a couple of smiles. Some of you listened to the radio in the 90s, so you know what I'm talking about. But this is what everyone was talking about back in 95, this vision of what it would look like for God to be among us, to dwell among us. She goes on to saying, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you could ask him just one question? Um, I like the song. It's a good song, but, you know, it's not very deep because we Christians have been reflecting on this reality for, you know, like 2,000 years and when she wrote the song, I don't think she cared to ask any Christians what they thought about it. But, but the reality is, is God did indeed come to dwell among us. And, and John says in our reading, yes, Joan Osborne, yes, God was one of us. God was metaphorically a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. The word in all of its divine fullness, pure incorruptible light and goodness had moved into the neighborhood and bought a house uh, found a job, maybe rented out some office space. And what John is saying in our reading today is that he and his pals, the other apostles, they saw it all firsthand. 
The next verse is, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, I know this sounds weird. I know it goes against every preconceived ancient notion of religion whatsoever. But we've seen it. And it happened. And when he came, he was full of grace and truth. This isn't the first time, by the way. Israel was unique in the world because God had dwelled with them before. If you know your Old Testament, you know that when um, Moses and the people were led out of Egypt by God's rescuing power, they uh, took about 40, 50, 60 years of, of kind of getting their act together before they moved up to the promised land in Canaan and took it over. And so when they went up there to take it over, um, God would lead them. And there was a special tent that they had in their nomadic tribe together. This was called the Tent of Meeting. And anytime Moses uh, and God needed to have a powwow about how to lead the people, Moses would go to this tent and a giant column of smoke would come down from heaven. And that was God's way of saying, everybody stay back. I'm meeting and hanging out with Moses right now. So God and Moses would get together and hang out, presumably. Uh, but that God did not take on anything like flesh. That God was just hanging out in spirit. And, well, um, after a while, um, God would then disappear back up in the clouds if he would not be present nearly as often. And when Moses and God are talking in that point, they're talking specifically about laws. They're talking about building a society together, how to structure a society that would be sort of intent on living out a godly will. And so uh, Moses and, and God are talking about laws at this point in the Old Testament. And so in that point, you have God dwelling amongst the people, but it's a different kind of dwelling. That God does not have um, fingers and toes. That God does not walk about. Um, this time, God does. This time, God does. God does not come in smoke or fire or lightning or thunder. God comes in the form of a baby with elbows and toenails and little cute baby hair. And that is the story, of course, of Christmas. And unlike the discussions that Moses and God were having back in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, they're not talking about laws this time. They're talking about grace and truth. Pick up at verse 16, a little further down. From his fullness, from the fullness of this word, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look how often the word grace is used in this text. Grace and truth coming together. It's a really remarkable pairing that John does. He says that if the old way of meeting with God had to do with laws, if it had to do with behaving right and behaving correctly, this time uh, he's going to be concerned with grace and truth. Uh, one of my favorite picks for the best uh, Christmas hymn of all time we're going to sing it in a little bit today, is O Little Town of Bethlehem. And the line from this hymn that makes it so potent for me is the line that's the end of the first verse, where the, the hymn sings, well, yeah, The hearts and fears of all the years met in the night the first birth of Bethlehem. And Christmas is a lot of things, I think. Christmas is exhaustion from all the extra obligations that you tack on, hosting the family. Christmas is the joy of watching someone open that perfectly picked present but rarely do we think of this holiday as an occasion for hopes and fears being met together in a little baby in a barn from 2,000 years ago. But don't let the tinsel and the reindeer fool you. 
Christmas, when it's properly understood, is very much about hope and fear. It's about judgment and grace. It's about law, and it's about gospel. And because when this little stranger in the manger makes himself known to the world, when the word becomes flesh, his purpose for coming is to give grace upon grace, forgiveness, freedom, redemption, eternal life. And that is the true gift of Christmas. This is why I don't think I have any desire to ever play Santa Claus. And I'm going to make a joke at my own expense, but it's not really a joke. Because look, you get a, a chubby guy with a beard who's some jolly. And he loves little kids and Christmas backgrounds. And the invitations come. That's all I'm going to say about it. But I really turn them because you know, it's not fake grace. Um, it's grammatic. Right away, Santa Claus burns his gifts free. They're trashed. Gifts are one way. They're disproportionate. They're an act of love. Um, they're, they're charity. It, it, it's, it's a one-way thing as a gift. Um, and as long as Santa is bringing cold to bed to the back kids, as long as Santa is, is watching your sleeping, and when you're awake and he's taking a lid twice, uh, Santa is really enough. Uh, the shoes on tree are simply boards on its face here, be here at the ear. Um, they're incentivizing behavior, as it were. Um, Santa is not in the gift business. He is in the law business. Call it anything you want, but those shiny prances under the tree from Santa, they are not gifts. They are rewards. Contrast this, of course, with the baby in the manger. The word became flesh. This little one offers to us everything at no cost to us. The word became flesh. We have seen this grace upon grace. He is not coming to reward good behavior, um, but he is coming as a token of heaven's love for all of us. We cannot earn our forgiveness. We cannot earn eternal life. We do not strive to keep up the payments so that we can keep the Holy Spirit we are simply loved to the point where even death can't keep us apart from the God we so deeply care about. And so this morning, friends, I say to you that God is indeed one of us. He has a name. He has a face. You can call him uh, his name to that face. And through prayer, you can ask him not just one question, but all the questions you want. More questions than Joan Osborne had imagined. And from this word, there is grace upon grace. There is forgiveness and eternal life. There is the Holy Spirit. There is so much more. Um, and that is where the true idea of Christmas lies. And I will conclude with one image for you this morning of what the God of grace looks like when he moves into your neighborhood. Many of you are familiar with the TV show, The Office. And you're familiar with the television romance of the salesman in the office, Jim Halpert, and the receptionist, Pam Beasley. And they have an on-again, off-again romance for about six seasons in the TV show. But by the middle of season six, the two of them have been together. They have planned the wedding. They are engaged. And so they're getting married. They're getting married in Niagara Falls in upstate New York. And they have gathered in a small church with friends and family. And the day of the wedding, however, and the night before, the drama is high. Friends and family are fighting. The office co-workers are there causing their own drama um, and so, risking bad luck, poor Pam, whom all of the drama has fallen, says, I need to see Jim. I need to see him right now. So Pam flees to the basement of the church, and Jim, her fiancé, there to be married in mere hours, meets her down there. She's weeping, and things have kind of come to a head because on top of all of the family drama, she had worn her veil, her veil caught in the door, and so she's weeping and crying in the church basement to see if the crack room of a church basement. There's sort of children's toys and craft supplies everywhere, and this poor bride is breaking down. Everything's falling apart. 
She says, the veil was the one thing maybe I could control, and I can't even control that. This whole day is ruined. We should have eloped like we talked about, said Pam. Everything's a mess, and everything is falling apart. And smiling and understanding, Jim reaches over to the table, picks up a pair of scissors, and holds them to his chest. And he pulls out his necktie that he's wearing with his suit and snips the tie. And he lets the bottom half of his tie fall to the ground. And he looks at his bride-to-be and says, There, now we're even. And Pam's tears of grief shift because she's no longer sad that the wedding she dreamed for had been lost. But they shift to tears of joy for finding a man who is willing to dwell with her for better and for worse, no matter what. So in the midst of Pam's great wedding tragedy, Jim chooses to dwell right alongside her, joining her in her marital misery out of love. And while the rest of the family and co-workers gave Pam the law, Jim comes along with an act of grace upon grace. And such, friends, is the love of God for those with whom he dwells. So I wish to you this morning peace and goodwill from God, our Heavenly Father. Merry Christmas. Amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.